Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. My name is Helen. I'm Janet. I'm Mel. And what's up? This is Dan. One of the main reasons why we started this podcast was to highlight how different, varied, and nuanced the Asian American experience is. Within that one on-paper checkbox category of Asian, which many of us have checked off many times now, is a multitude of subgroups, ethnicities, backgrounds, career pursuits, experiences, and perspectives that comprise the fastest growing group within our country. On today's episode of Asian Boss Girl, we have Dan Matthews, a Los Angeles-based rapper and Korean-American adoptee. Dan is an active spokesperson and advocate for transracial Asian adoptees, known for his docuseries about his search for his birth family that reached audiences worldwide and garnered a feature in Lisa Ling's This Is Life. He is also an alternative rap artist who has toured internationally and released two full-length albums under the moniker Dan, a.k.a. Dan, as well as the executive director of ISA, International Secret Agents, an entertainment platform for celebrating Asian youth culture and its global influence, founded by Wang Fu Productions and Far East Movement, where he spearheads and curates the annual Identity LA Concert Series. Dan is also one of our very good friends. He's always looking out for us and brings us into events and partnerships that celebrate Asian Americans. Please welcome to Asian Boss Girl, a longtime friend, Dan Matthews. Welcome, Dan. Dan, a.k.a. Dan. Dan. (laughs) That's me. So stoked to be here. Thank you guys very, very much. I really... I'm like very excited about this. Oh, well, thank you so much for being here with us today. You are one of the few friends that I have that is adopted. And I feel like I've learned a lot through you and your documentary and what you shared with us and meeting your family at events. But we never really dove into the detail that I think your story deserves. So we want to start off our episode by asking you about your childhood and growing up as an adoptee. You grew up in Ventura, California. How would you describe your hometown, your family, and your childhood? Well, first off, I definitely am very excited to share this. I do think that one of the things that we always talk about is this goal of being able to present different Asian American stories. And so I want to say kudos to the Asian Boss Girls for wanting to have me be the platform to be able to talk about Asian adoptee issues. Uh, I do think that it's something extremely important and close to me. And so I want to say thank you guys, because I know that you have a lot of listeners that potentially might be Asian adoptees or potentially might have Asian adoptee friends or family members. And so I think that it is a part of our community and something that is very unique to the Asian American experience. So for me, I grew up in Ventura County, which is like an hour north of L.A., 
Not a lot of people have actually been there. It's kind of one of those places that you drive through. But ultimately, it's Southern California. It's basically like a smaller part of Los Angeles. That's what it kind of looks like. And so for me, growing up, I had a pretty standard American upbringing. There wasn't like anything dramatically special about the way that I was raised. I'm very, very grateful for the family and the things that I had around me. Mm-hmm. And so on the surface level, it was it was pretty basic. Like I just had a very American upbringing, grew up and went to high school, went to college. Yeah. And so a lot of the, the natural hit points of just growing up in America. Yeah. 100% of what I'm talking about is definitely my experience. Mm-hmm. I consider the fact that I got to grow up in the place that I did. It's just all a... It's just all timing and luck. I had no idea that I was going to grow up in Southern California. You're, mm-hmm. kind of, you're, you're given the experience you're given. So I will say, and I think that it's very important to say that all of this definitely comes from a very personal experience. And there are a lot of other adoptees that grew up in other parts of the mm-hmm. country where they're definitely not surrounded by the things that maybe I was surrounded by, or they're not given uh, just the proximity to being around more diversity or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I do think that's extremely important to like state that uh, I don't want to undermine anybody else's experiences because I know that... When I state that I had a pretty normal upbringing, that's not the same for a lot of other adoptees. So I think that's pretty important to state. Um, But again, to bring it back on my own experience, that uh, I was like around a lot of very Southern California experience. I think the Southern California experience (laughs) is like, at least on paper, surfers, punk rock, uh, Mm. um, I guess Mexican food. I don't know. Like that just sounds <laughs> Actually, like well, like, I mean, like American experience. Yeah, I mean, it's. Well, I would say for myself, like um, the activities that you participated in when you're young, like that has a lot to do with like how it shapes you, right? So, were you like, did you play baseball? Were you on sports teams? Did you do after school activities? Did you play instruments? Like, what were some of the things that supplemented your time at school? Yeah. So maybe that is that falls probably a little bit more in line with the idea of growing up with. I had two white parents. Mm -hmm. My dad, I think, was Irish and my mom is German. And so, and they're definitely third or fourth generation to America. So from that experience, I do think that I had a very specific American upbringing and that my parents put me into stuff that they were used to or that Mm -hmm. was very normal to Mm -hmm. the white American experience. So I did Boy Scouts. I don't know Mm -hmm. if a lot of Asian kids did Boy Scouts. I, I from what I hear, I don't think so. One of the things that we always joke about is like the things that we uh, ate or tried growing up. So we had a lot of casseroles. Uh, we had a lot of American foods. I didn't yeah. eat rice with anything. I had bread with everything, though. We had a lot of cereal, milk, stuff like that. Mm. And so it was just very, very much an American experience growing mm. up. We made cookies. They, I'm pretty sure they had me play soccer and baseball and yeah. whatever other sports. And I think that based off of what you see in books and TV, that's like the American Mm. experience. Well, I'm curious because you were a kid growing up with white parents and in a community that was also predominantly white. How did, when did you first realize that you were Asian? You are Asian. See, another one of those things that I think is very interesting is the honest answer for that is there wasn't a moment where I thought that I was Asian. I think that you just always know that you're Asian or you're a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And I think it's helpful too, the fact that like my parents were white and that I'm Asian and so dramatically different. And so they didn't necessarily need to tell me that versus I do know of Korean adoptees or Asian adoptees that grow up in Asian households. And that it's, I think, even a harder conversation maybe to have with those kids because 
when they have no idea, if there's not necessarily a way that they would have any idea, I think that's maybe a more difficult conversation. So yeah, there wasn't really necessarily a time that my parents told me that I was Asian or that I was Korean. It just kind of was very apparent from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So I think that was kind of maybe a benefit too, that I just always had to like live with that. Mm -hmm. Did you already, did you ever feel out of place though, when you were in school or the fact that you looked different? I only felt different. In the same way that maybe you guys felt different. Yeah. Because I think the, the people that I was around, kids are mean. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think kids will just say stuff because they don't know any better. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily they made fun of me for being adopted. They just made fun of me for being Asian. And so and maybe the way that I could flip that on maybe how I feel different versus maybe the way that you felt different when you got made fun of is that I had nothing to relate to after that. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm Asian. Mm. I don't know. Maybe. Versus maybe kids that grew up with an Asian upbringing could talk to their parents or their their other family yeah. members mm-hmm. and they would have something that be, they could they could point to to say no I'm not different like I I belong here right. versus me growing up in an experience where I didn't belong in my family and I didn't belong wherever it was that I was supposed to be. Do you feel like those moments made you dive deeper into owning your identity that you are different or did it make you want to retract away from it? At the time I don't know what little Daniel was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that it definitely influenced and had me internalizing a lot of those feelings because now I'm super Asian. And I think that you guys obviously know how deep I am into trying to understand my Asian Korean roots. For sure. And so I think that it probably influenced my later decisions to become very, very much deeply to dive into being Asian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost been subdued for so long and now it's just like bursting out of the seams. Like oh, yeah. I'm Asian, I've been Asian my whole life. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But again, for a lot of adoptees, they go completely the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And for them, they internalize the feelings and they just have a lot of self-hate. And I'm sure that I felt a lot of self-hate too. Because when you don't feel like you belong in anywhere, mm-hmm. that that makes you really wonder like why you belong with the family that you're with or mm-hmm. the people you're around. And it makes you really just not like yourself because you have mm-hmm. literally nothing to, to relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does little Daniel remember at what point that was a very like prevalent feeling? Was that more high school and you were more aware maybe of, of like who you are? And Yeah, I think that probably junior high, high school is when I thought way more about race. And I met more Koreans and Asian people too. Mm-hmm. And I think that that definitely helps open up your eyes. And I remember that I had a moment when I was in high school and up until that point, especially because when we were growing up, the internet wasn't as dramatic as it was. And there wasn't the access to that information Mm -hmm. that it wasn't like I could watch stuff and be like, oh my God, there's Asians everywhere. Mm -hmm. Your world is only your world. Your world is the city you grew up in and the family you're with. And so for me, my Asian world was the 10 Asian people that I had met and that was it. So when I was in high school, I made some Asian friends and they had me come over to their family's places for meals and whatnot, which was nice because I think they maybe, just to be honest, I think they probably pitied me a little bit that I didn't have that experience growing up. And then when I was in high school, I was in a community service organization. Shout out Kiwanis. <laughs> Kiwanis. Kiwanis. And as we're all very aware, Asian people joined a lot of community service organizations in high school. If you grew up with that experience, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason... There were just a lot of Asian people in that organization. I remember going to uh, events with my friends that were part of that organization and being like, oh, my God, I can't believe there's so many Asian people at these these different things. Mm -hmm. This is mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And they all look like me. And I don't feel different for the first time, most importantly. Mm -hmm. So I think that was very helpful in me trying to figure myself out. 
Mm-hmm. Well, going back to, so you did share that, uh, there was never really like a conversation with your, with your, um, parents about being Asian or being adopted. So does that mean from the earliest that you remember, you always knew that you were adopted and that you were Korean? I think so. I just really can't think of any moment where they would have sat me down to say, mm-hmm. this is, you're adopted. This is where you're from. Right. I've got very faint memories of looking at my paperwork mm-hmm. when I was younger and I don't know what the context was, but I remember looking at it and maybe we had a conversation then. Mm-hmm. And then I remember being triggered by things that were adoptee adjacent. And here's a, a really simple example. But when you watched uh, The Jungle Book mm-hmm. and then Mowgli is living with the animals and then he uh. meets his family in the village and then he's going between these two worlds, stuff like that would really trigger me. Mm-hmm. Whenever I would see stories of of displaced kids being with different family situations. Right, right. So stuff like that made me feel different. And I could, I, I internalized stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And at the time I couldn't vocalize it, but right. I can vocalize it now. When you say internalize, what does that mean for you? Yeah, I think that the idea of internalizing feelings is something that isn't necessarily just, a, it's everybody. Everybody internalizes their feelings different. And that there's certain traumas or things that we all grow up with that you just you're kind of just built with them. And then later on, they just form your personality. And so there's different experiences that we've all had that turn us into the people that we are. So I'm sure that I've internalized a lot of feelings and things that are deep down within me that are different than the way that you guys have internalized stuff Mm -hmm. and have turned me into the person that I am. And I deeply think, so to go down that adoption path even more Mm -hmm. is this idea that I'm still struggling with that I, I believe, but I don't have necessarily the proof But this idea that as a baby, that the first couple of months of life are so important Mm -hmm. and that everybody sees it with your own families, the people that you guys are with, your siblings that have kids, your cousins that have kids, that you can see how important those first couple of months of life Mm -hmm. are in order for a child to develop the way that they need to. But when an adoptee is, or even kids that are in orphanages right now, kids that didn't even have the luck of being adopted, that they were just taken from their biological family Mm -hmm. and then immediately displaced and put into a situation where they don't have physical touch for X amount of months. And then they're put into an orphanage, which is like another set of traumas that you're with. Mm -hmm. So for me, again, I consider myself lucky with my specific story, but the fact that I was taken away from my biological mom at the very beginning and then put into an orphanage for two months and then put into the hospital and then put with a, a foster mom and then finally flown out to the United States... Those are like five layers of trauma that I've got no idea how that's deeply affected me. And I'm sure that it has. I just don't know what it is about it. Do you recall, do you have like memories of of being with your foster mom? No, but that's why I think that it's all of the internalization. Mm. You just don't even know what those things do to affect you. So I'm sure that there's some layer of emotional instability or uh, my ability to be able to connect with people that probably draws from that. And that isn't just, oh, Dan's grew up in Ventura County and he's just, he's just a white guy in an Asian body. It's more of a, there's got to be something very physical and tangible and scientific to the idea that if you're pulled from your parents mm-hmm. at that beginning stage, that it makes you a different person. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that is yet. And again, I consider myself lucky that I, I feel good about who I am at this point in my life and that I've got very loving friends and a family that I care about. Yeah. But... I've got no idea how that impacts my own relationships, even with the things that I do have. Mm. And I'm sure that a lot of adoptees maybe can relate to that. Yeah. And at, at what age were you adopted? 
Eight months. Oof. So you're a baby that goes from mom, orphanage, hospital. That's like so many different movements for a baby yeah. to go through yeah. until they're eventually in a situation which is even dramatically different because you're in a different culture that you don't even know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't know why I didn't, I didn't think about the fact that you had probably gone through multiple experiences before landing with your parents. Yeah, it, I, it, I think that it deeply, I think, impacts a lot of adoptees or transracial adoptees in general, or adoptees mm-hmm. in general, that it's not something that they have to deal with that probably informs how they make decisions mm-hmm. later on and how they connect, ultimately how you connect with mm-hmm. people. So I don't know how that's going to affect me later on, but uh, yeah, just the nurture versus nature. Mm-hmm. The environment that we live in makes us the people that we are. So, uh, because you have no memory of this, was were this information of the different stages that you went through? Was that something that your parents shared with you? No, probably later on. Maybe we briefly talked about it, but we never really discussed it. Mm-hmm. I just kind of understood what it was, and that when I later on, when I finally went to my orphanage, then I found out the different layers of it. But I did have a foster mother. And I was very lucky for that. And I got to meet her. And I'm very grateful for that experience because she was a part of my life. And so that's like a very important thing. So why don't you take us through that? Like at what point in your childhood did you start developing an interest to look deeper um, into your background? And what was that whole experience like? So to I'll just flash forward to when I actually started thinking more and more heavily mm-hmm. about that experience. Because I think that between high school through maybe Till I was 22 out of college that my experience was probably pretty similar. I didn't really mm-hmm. think about it too much because for a lot of adoptees, you just don't expect to ever want to connect with your biological family yeah. because you just assume that it's impossible mm-hmm. and that because of the fact that it's impossible, it isn't something that you want to like focus on or worry about. Mm-hmm. Obviously, people still think about it. And it's one of those things that I think eats a lot of us uh, alive. I started thinking about it a lot more when I got an invite to go out to this Korean adoption camp in Colorado, shout out Heritage Camps. And so (laughs) so I got a chance to go out there and then I met a ton of other Korean adoptee counselors that it was made for domestic and international adoption. Mm -hmm. So I'm very thankful to that camp because it opened up my eyes to other Korean adoptees that were like me Mm -hmm. and enabled me to have those conversations that I needed. And then it made me think a lot more about my experience and, oh, maybe this is kind of important. Maybe I need to look deeper into it and figure out what it means and to maybe potentially do a biological family search. Uh, So it all started when that was when you were in high school? No, after college. After college. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that, that one invitation, uh, it lit a, a spark in you, would you say? To it did. Start, yeah. Because you only know what you know. And I hadn't right. really done too much outreach to meet other Korean adoptees at that time. I was kind of trying to. It was always nice when I met one, but it wasn't to the point of when I was finally at that camp and I was surrounded by mm-hmm. at least 50 counselors that all had similar experiences. So mm-hmm. that was really incredible from all over the country. So after that experience, what then, because uh, you basically created an entire docuseries where you uh, made it a mission to find your birth, your birth parents. So what, what, uh, what went from camp and then suddenly I'm going to make a docuseries about this? Like what happened in between? So to get you to a quicker answer, it, it's two things. It was time because at the, the time that I wanted to make that search, I had only gone to Korea one other time and this was going to be my second time. And not that I didn't want to go to Korea again after that, but I just thought, I don't know, maybe it might be a long time afterwards. And so I knew that if I didn't do it then, that maybe I would never do it. Mm. And then secondly, 
I had already made a decision to go out to Korea that summer to go to this International Korean Adoptee Association Summit with adoptees from all over the world. And it was just amazing to be in a situation where you've got Korean adoptees from Belgium, Germany, the Netherlands, Australia, mm-hmm. all over. So at that time, I knew that I wanted to document that experience. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this is influenced by my silly Hollywood upbringing and being in L.A. <laughs> and being around all the stuff that we're around, mm-hmm. just being in Southern California. And so... It was pretty funny because when I went to that summit, you guys know Sam Futterman, the other adoptee twin that Mm -hmm. is a very close friend of mine, and that we were two of the only people from Los Angeles. And of course, the kids from Los Angeles were documenting their experience. (laughs) Like, come on. What douchebags? So, (laughs) So... Douchebaggery aside, we had wanted to document the experience anyway. Mm. And then I thought that, well, if I was going to make that ask, we should probably, this is maybe compelling to try to do it. But also, also again, douchebaggery aside, that a very very important thing to talk about, though. And I think that we've had this discussion before about Asians and media. And I think especially at that time that the Asian American movement was starting to build, but it wasn't at where, where it is currently now. And if Asian stories in general were maybe a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of things being told, Asian adoptee stories were a sliver of that fraction. Yeah. So I knew that I wanted to film something, if anything, just to be able to hopefully tell the different perspective about being an Asian adoptee. And so we ended up going out and we filmed something. And then from that experience, we ended up being able to put it out. And I'm very super grateful for everybody that's been able to watch it because I do think that ultimately, even if it's not an educational thing, it's not meant to be an educational. We're not really, we're not, we're not spilling facts, mm-hmm. but I think that it's my experience as an adoptee. And I think that hopefully just having more content out there makes other people feel like more full of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You feel like a, 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 a more well-rounded person when you see other things reflect your experience. Yeah. Well, I will say, I will highly, highly recommend for anyone who has not seen it yet, this docuseries is out on YouTube. And what is it called, Dan? Dan, a doc. Called- <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know why this is so stupid or silly to say. It's called AKA Dan. So just look it up. Just look up Dan Korean. It is so, <laughs> honestly like one of the, it's so good. I mm-hmm. was like tearing up watching it and it just feels like such a, a story that obviously isn't something that I've experienced before, but to be able to connect to you on a more like human level, because yeah. I understand that experience that you've been through is just like so amazing. It, mm-hmm. Like you were saying, kind of like broadens the human experience mm-hmm. for you a little bit more. Yeah. Um, also, what I think is crazy about your story, and it still fascinates me, is that not only did you find your birth parents, you also found out you are a twin. Yeah, so we kind of buried the lead. That's actually probably a plot <laughs> twist, right? <laughs> halfway, halfway through the podcast, maybe I should have introduced that at the very beginning. <laughs> and the reasons why people might have been interested in a YouTube video. Walk us through what went through your mind when you found out that not only did you have a sister, but a brother that was a twin. Thank you, Helen. Well, I am... Well, if I could actually maybe push it and maybe just say something really quick about Helen, Mel, and then Janet, I know you at that time. I kind of like knew you at that time. I don't know. We met a little later. So I actually, I don't remember. Um, I don't think I, I... We were fully in each other's yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. So I do want to say that it was really important though that I think that I had met you guys around that experience in that mm-hmm. time. And... I don't even know how deep I could have gotten into it at that that moment, but 
you, you guys have always been very supportive, though, of these things. And I think that I'm very grateful that you guys at that time supported that project and came out and gave me advice. And this was before, right around the time that you'd first moved to LA. Mel, you were looking to move to LA around that time. And so it was very mm-hmm. comforting to have people that helped me feel okay with telling these things. So I was very mm-hmm. grateful for that. So with regards to the twin thing, <laughs> I, I say very nonchalantly, and I understand the gravity and the weight of, of having that experience because it's something that not a lot of people get to experience. But when I went back and I did the search, usually for a lot of adoptees, not only are you just put in the position where you don't think that you're going to ever meet your biological family, that... Uh, even if you do, that it takes months to ever be able to reunite because usually, one, your biological family isn't a full family. Usually, you do, maybe you meet your biological mom. Mm-hmm. And even with that experience, usually, because a lot of adoption comes from a lot of uh, just experiences. Nobody wants to give up their kid, their baby. And mm-hmm. I, again, I say this with the the most respect for those decisions and what has to happen to have to give up your child. Mm-hmm. But... Nobody ever wants to go through that experience. So for them to have to relive that is mm-hmm. something that not a lot of people ever want to have to do. So even if you're able to like reunite, usually the biological family does not want to meet you because they're done with that period of their life. Mm-hmm. And then even if you do maybe get connection with them and they're willing to meet, it takes them like six, seven months to, for them to be comfortable with that. Yeah. So it's just a lot of different layers of why usually the reunifications never, never, ever happen. And so I got very, very lucky that I... I think what helped me was that I had some friends in Korea that were able to physically be on the ground to go out to the adoption agency to make those asks for me in Korean, which I think is extremely helpful because mm. me as an American had no idea how to communicate with anybody that worked there. And so they were able to find my paperwork. And then ultimately also, it's not the actual process of doing the search isn't, wasn't that heavy. You basically put out your contact information and put out something that says you're willing to connect. Mm-hmm. And then... It's up to the agency and whatever's left inside of their paperwork from your file. And if they have the correct address or if the family has updated it, that maybe you'll make connection. And from that, even the people that have tried, usually the family doesn't update their information. They usually Mm. just never come back to the the orphanage Mm -hmm. or the agency or whatever it was. I was Eastern Social Welfare Society, by the way, for any adoptees maybe listening. So through that experience, I put out the ask and that they ultimately sent a note out and that the process was that every couple of weeks I would check in and then no update. And I kind of assumed that was just going to be my experience. I, I was very numb to the experience and very just, okay, whatever this is, I'm just going to keep on asking. Mm-hmm. Nothing's probably going to happen. And so about a month before we were going to go out to Korea, just everything good that, that could have happened, happened. I sent out my usual what's going on email. And then I got an email back Later that night, they sent a note saying that they actually made contact with my biological family and that if you want to send a note, you should do that. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And then I thought it was going to be several weeks or months until I heard the next thing. And then I sent the note and then they sent a note back. And then in the second note, it basically said my paperwork and the letter was not only is your biological mom and dad still together, you've got an identical twin brother and a sister and I was like, no, I don't. What are you talking about? That's not what it says on my paperwork. Yeah. Because the paperwork that they give you is fabricated at most. Ultimately, a lot of adoption information, if you think about the 80s, not very good at note-taking. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't like they could just secure it in a computer. So yeah. you've got wh- whatever you've got. So a lot of our stories are fabricated. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, on that paperwork, it said that I did have a sibling. 
a brother, but that the brother came after me and that it was, if anything, a younger brother and that the parents had separated. So I just assumed that that was like whatever my story was going to be. Yeah. So then when I got the note that they were still together and that I had a twin brother, it was the most amazing news because you never expect to ever hear that ever. And so I remember just being in disbelief for the longest time and trying to figure out whatever that meant. Yeah. And then again, everything that could have gone well went well. We went out there. I got to meet my biological family and I don't know. We just, it, 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 it was awkward, but it worked and I'm so grateful that they didn't hate me or they didn't like have any mm. weird feelings towards me. Yeah. And that ultimately we just, it ended up working out. So it was just mm-hmm. a very amazing experience that I'm very, very grateful for. And I'm, I'm lucky also to say that I'm still in touch with them till, the, t- till today. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, I remember actually, so when Dan did the docuseries, he kind of premiered at certain film festivals in Sadaf in San Diego his brother's able to fly out and I met his twin brother and I was like, this is nuts. And I was like, Dan, this is crazy. And then I remember talking to uh, your brother and you, you guys both like to rap too. So I'm like, there's some similarities there, but it was just like, so crazy to be like this whole time. You just thought maybe you might have like another sibling or whatever, but a twin brother, that's just insane. Um, when you went out to meet your, your biological family, did you, did your siblings know that you existed? No. So I think that it was probably even crazier for them to hear mm-hmm. that I existed because for them, they had grown up in their situation yeah, and that they had no idea that there was another sibling potentially anywhere, let alone my brother had a twin brother anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think for them, it was probably even more shocking Yeah, Where, versus me. It could have been, I don't know. I'm, my family could be anywhere. It wasn't, mm-hmm. I was prepared to meet whoever it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they had no idea. How would you describe, like, you and your twin brother finding out about each other? Do you think that you both shared similar, like, thoughts around this information? Like, how, how did, you know, do you feel like your reaction and his reaction, were they very similar or different? I don't know. I just, I really, and here's the other honest thing, is I still haven't really been able to have a serious conversation with them mm-hmm. about this, this topic. I'll talk with them about stuff. And we definitely, after we first met, we sat down and did a thing where we lined out our lives to see when we went to college and mm. how, how our lives ended up being. Yeah. And that was, that was cool. But maybe this is one of those things that like, maybe I'm a little messed up and I just don't know how to like properly connect with them and that I'm trying to connect with them. And I feel like that we have definitely a better relationship than maybe other people and, and similar things. And maybe it's a guy thing too. I don't mm. know. But I know that it's something that I actually just don't know how he, how he truly felt about yeah, meeting imagine. me. I'm assuming that it's, it's been an amazing thing. And I think that based off of, I, I can feel stuff though. And I can feel that it's a good feeling. And mm-hmm. I don't feel that there's any weird feelings about any of this. Yeah. And so that's what makes me feel positive about our relationship and me continuing to get to know him. Yeah. But the unfortunate thing and also the fortunate thing is that if I'm ever going to get to know him, I need to spend like a year with him where it's it's me literally just spending time with them all the time. Right, right. And as we move on in our lives, I don't know when that moment is going to be afforded to me. Right. And so it's one of those things that I need to like figure out soon before it's too late. Yeah. Is there a language barrier also when you're speaking to him? Can he speak English? He can speak English pretty well. And so I'm also very grateful to him and my family. This is where like it's also difficult for me because I feel awful that I haven't really tried to learn Korean or done anything to make it easier for them to communicate with me. Mm. They've learned some English and they can kind of communicate with me now. And so I feel kind of 
not very good about that, that I haven't been able to, and for whatever the reasons are, mm-hmm. I, we're all busy, everybody, but it should be something that maybe I should have made more time for. And I still want to, and I really want to learn Korean to be able to communicate because it's not like my biological mom and dad are going to learn English at this point yeah. in their lives. Right. That's just not something that's going to happen. But my brother knows English though, and I'm very fortunate about that. Well, one thing that I find also very fascinating is that you and your brother are twins, but y'all look nothing alike. Yeah. So here are three things that go into that that I think a lot about. The first thing is, we'll just talk about fun stuff. So fun stuff is that this is where nurture versus nature comes in. And you got to even just maybe look at your own siblings and how you have differed from them. And for us, we both grew up in two different complete societies. Yeah. He grew up with Korean food and being also when we were first born, he got better first and that I was sick still. So that's the reason why I was put up for adoption and not him. I play that what if game all the time. If I was, if I got better and that he didn't get better, that maybe I would still be in Korea. And Mm -hmm. that's like another mind. You'd be here doing a podcast with him. (laughs) (laughs) So, that's something that I think about quite a lot, yeah. which very, very realistically could have happened. We grew up in two different complete societies. He was healthier immediately. I was still in the hospital sick for a while. So I'm sure that it, it affected my weight and like whatever it is. Mm-hmm. He is bigger than I am too. And that my diet was different than his. Also from the Korean like language side, if you're only speaking, you can, you can tell the difference when you look at like Asian Asians versus like Asian Americans, right? Like it, there's just something about it. So even with like language, he's speaking Korean all the time, which is a very specific language. And the way that you talk is very different than when you speak American and your words are a lot bigger. I'm doing this on down motion <laughs> that nobody else is going to be able to see, but I'm using my hand to express yeah. it to help. Yeah, but, like, <laughs> but it's like, cult, cult, lot, yes. yeah, like culturally uh, or different cultures have different like norms or behaviors, mm-hmm. right? So that's going to cause you to have different demeanors if you are like raised in one culture versus the other. Yeah. So I think that just affects the way that you look and you feel. I don't know, man. Like as far as I know from the DNA test and the blood test, Ultimately, what we did was when I was out in Korea, we went to a a doctor and we did like a hair follicle test and then a DNA test. And then I got the call saying that we were identical. And so I'm like, okay. And then I I looked at our, like our, our IDs are the same and like our birth dates are are the same. And I don't think that our parents would lie to us, but that's just what I'm going off of. Wow. That is incredible. Do you think, have you seen any like scientific studies done on this whole like nature versus nurture thing? I mean, also... Have you like tested your cholesterol, your blood? Like what diet is better, American diet or Korean diet? There's so many. Like... Somebody should study me. Oh my God, for, yeah. for real. If there are yeah. any scientists out there, Dan is a good um, there, specimen. There are, <laughs> there are studies that happen though. And I've definitely looked into like nurture versus nature studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing that I think is interesting about my side is that usually for twins, the twins are both separated. Meaning that it's not like that one of them stays with the family and one of them is put off with mm. another family. Most, if not all of the cases I've seen, it's always been both of the twins are put up for adoption. Mm. And that one person is just, maybe they live in Europe and maybe one twin lives in America, but at least they're both put up in a situation where they're both living in, in very different mm. situations, not that isn't their biological situation. Mm-hmm. Right. But with mine, I think that I'm really the only situation that I can think of where, and please check me internet if if you guys have other connections to this where 
the biological sibling stayed with the family and then the other kid was adopted. So I think that's even more of an interesting thing to see is what happens when one kid stays with family of origin versus one kid's raised in a situation that's completely not their own. Yeah. For anyone out there who's looking to get more bang for their buck, Credit Karma Money is a brand new checking account where you can win cash reimbursements for making purchases. You already know Credit Karma is a company that has always been there to help you make better financial decisions. And now they want to help you even more. When you use your Credit Karma Money debit card, you can win daily instant karma purchase reimbursements on items up to $5,000. They've already given away over $3 million in instant karma to over 50,000 Credit Karma members and counting. There's no minimum balance requirements, no overdraft fees, and free withdrawals from a network of over 50,000 ATMs. Right now, visit creditkarma.com slash winmoney to open your free account and start winning instant karma. Go to creditkarma.com slash winmoney to sign up for free and start winning instant karma. That's creditkarma.com slash winmoney. Instant karma is sponsored by Credit Karma. No purchase necessary. Exclusions and terms apply. See rules. Banking services provided by MVB Bank, Inc. Member FDIC. Maximum balance and transfer limits apply. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. May was the busiest month for ABG thus far. We love productive months, but they can definitely feel hectic. At times like this, we like to reflect and figure out creative ways to improve processes moving forward. No matter what 2021 brings, you can spend it creating something meaningful with Skillshare's online classes because time is what we make of it. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. With so much to explore, real projects to create, and the support of fellow creatives, Skillshare empowers you to accomplish real growth. Productivity and efficiency are things we value here at ABG. We realize as a small business, crafting the right workflows and adding structure allows us to be more productive. The two classes that immediately grabbed my attention were Project Management in Real Life and Productivity Masterclass. These are great classes to get started if you're looking to improve workflow and systems in your small business or in your life. With Skillshare, you can find inspiration in the moment and learn how to express your creativity. Skillshare is also incredibly affordable, especially when compared to pricey in-person classes and workshops. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. Bring color and beauty and fun to your year. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com ABG and get a free trial and premium membership. Again, that's Skillshare.com ABG. Self-care and routine is so, so important these days. And lately, I've been loving my get-ready routine with my razor from Billy. They've created everyday essentials by delivering premium razors and high-performing body care directly to you. With the Billy razor, I love how it glides over all the nooks and crannies of my body. And one of my favorite things about this razor is that it comes with a small magnetic holder that sticks right to your shower's wall, and it keeps the razor out of the tub. We all know that annoying feeling when the razor slips off the edge and into the tub, and then you gotta bend over and pick it up. Gross. Keep your razor clean and in its place. And if you go to mybilly.com, you can get their starter kit for just $9. That includes their award-winning razor, two refill blades, and the magnetic holder. To express a little love for our show, go to mybilly.com ABG. It's a small way you can support us while getting the best razor you will ever own. It's just $9 to get your starter kit, plus free shipping always. Go to mybilly.com ABG, spelled mybilli dot com slash ABG. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swathers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swathers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. 
Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. As you're going through your, you know, finding your biological parents, how did you explain that to your adopted parents or your mom? Yeah, so I got lucky on that too. But my my life is a source of luck after luck after luck. And so it's tough for me to ever think negative situations about my current situation when all I can see is that I just got really, really lucky. So Anyway, that's, that, that's the way that I always approach stuff. And that's the reason why I talk about it in the way that I do. And again, acknowledging that not all adoptees mm-hmm. have a similar situation whatsoever. So I say that as I say that with my mom, I got lucky that she, I just always knew that she'd be supportive mm-hmm. and that she wouldn't care that I did it. And I definitely kept it a secret from her when I first initially made the search because I didn't want to tell her unless anything happened. Yeah. And then eventually happened and I told her and I it wasn't that big of a deal. I just I didn't even have to like think about it. I, I did it didn't fill me with any kind of anxiety of needing to like have that conversation with her and my family because it just it was it was what it was. Yeah. We love your mom. She comes up to so many of your events and she's always just like the sweetest lady. Yeah and apparently she listens to the podcast. Oh she really does. Oh shout out to Mrs. Matthews. Matthews. Stop listening to my friend <laughs> You're the best. Oh, your mom actually donated to one of our. Uh, we were doing a mukbang. And oh yeah, she she, no, she's great. Mom, you're great. Yeah. Well, Dancer says she wants all the Korean dramas I recommend and bakes my cookies that I do oh one time. Oh, she really does. <laughs> so, Helen, you've heard this story. I think I use this as like a stand-up. It's going to be the first line in my stand-up comedy routine that I eventually write. Okay. But the first time that I spent time with my biological family in their home in, in Gojido, they took me to a Korean spa. <laughs> And then oh. when they asked me to do that, I know what happens at Korean spas. You're going to get naked in front of people. <laughs> and when they told me we're going to go to this Korean spa, I told them, I don't want to do that. That sounds like something that is on the opposite list of getting to know you. <laughs> oh. But then I was like, okay, whatever. Sure, let's do it. And then we went to the Korean spa. And so it's normal and they didn't think about it. But then my biological father and brother got naked in the locker room. And then I got naked in front of them. And I was like, <laughs> well, I guess it's the best way to get to know each other. And so we ended up spending an afternoon in the Korean spa and that like, yo, my eye, like, <laughs> I, I, couldn't st- I couldn't help but look. I had to know. Yeah. I mean, totally. What was- yeah. I just had to like, and then just look. And also I'll say this about my Korean dad. That <laughs> the, uh, uh, he's like a buff dude. Like he's, like, <laughs> he's got like a good body. I'm like really stoked about my, my DNA. <laughs> naked in his 60s so yeah. yeah so that was very positive yes yeah i mean dan's you know I mean, people whoever's listening right now you know what dan's referring to yeah, identical yeah, yeah. twins that are you know identical, a- identical. Anatomical. <laughs> i mean was it why <laughs> was it oh well we didn't like put them up against each other <laughs> so i don't know like we couldn't compare it okay we're totally gonna toggle explicit <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. I mean, these are these are that's, questions that I think a lot of people wonder. Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. important to ask because, yeah, you never know. I mean, he is taller. Is, is he like more like, is okay. he bigger? Yeah, he's, he's more girthy than me. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we went there, y'all. Yep. All right, well, okay. I guess Korean diets are better. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Okay, Dan, let's talk about dating. You kind of shared previously, Dan, that you kind of grew up in a white community. Did that affect your preference for women when you started dating? I think that it definitely influenced my preference when I was younger because you only know what you know. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that I was necessarily around a lot of Asian women. And also the media and the things that I was looking at, there weren't like any Asian girls that I could be really into. So actually when I was in high school, when did Crouching Tiger come out? All right, so y'all, high school, there, yeah. for people that don't know, there's this movie that came out like when we were in high school called Crouching Tiger, Hidden, Hidden Dragon mm-hmm. that had Zong Ziyi. And so Zong Ziyi for me was... <laughs> Your first Asian my crush. My first Asian crush. <laughs> oh, like, interesting. Back in the day. And so it went from her because she was literally the first Asian woman that I saw on screen. Yeah. So that was exciting. And then... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, but prior to that, like when you were younger... Everyone that you like crushed on and were attracted to was mostly white, right? Yeah, because I didn't. It, this sounds weird, but I didn't know what Asian girls, girls look like. Yeah, representation yeah. matters. It yeah, does. Yeah, you don't, yeah. Really, you don't really know what that is. And then, so can you walk us through the, your experience when you when you uh, joined, you know, the, the community service org, and you went to that conference? Also, there's like a bunch of Asian girls where you're like, holy shit! Walk us through that experience. You know what's maybe more of an interesting way to mm. to frame that is. I started feeling worried though, and this is something I think about a lot, is whether or not, am I, at that time, was I like trying to appropriate Asian culture? Did I have yellow Uh. fever? Because I didn't really grow up with a Asian experience. Mm, And so part of me felt guilty for liking Asian Mm, women because that wasn't my experience. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder if this is like a fetish. And that I didn't know what it was. I think that I've cleared that up since then. I obviously am very, I'm I'm Asian. Like, (laughs) (laughs) uh, so that's not something that I I think I necessarily worry about. But at that time, that was like one of the things that I came across that I thought about and just because it wasn't my experience. And so I was was around a lot of, it's again, similar to the way that an American guy, white, black, Hispanic around maybe a group of Asian women for the first time and they start developing crushes for like maybe different reasons and actually like really getting to know them. So it's kind of like tough to deny that. So that's just me being honest with the situation. But yeah. But the other thing that I noticed was that me having an Asian face, I think was different with a very similar way in that more, I started feeling more attraction from other Asian girls too. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't just the fact that, oh my gosh, I'm around like uh, people that look like me for the first time. I also, it, it was mm. reciprocated mm. versus me being around a lot of white women or non-Asian women. It wasn't being reciprocated at all. Mm. And so you feel very asexual when mm. you don't feel wanted. Right. So it's tough to deny the fact that like once that happens, you're like, well, I, I think that I know what I need to do, <laughs> which is to be interested in Asian girls because that's going to maybe lead me to a mm. partner. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is, Facts. That, is, that is pretty fascinating, though, because that has influenced so much of your... You're asking yourself questions about who you're attracted to and why and what you're looking for in a mm. partner that a lot of people would not have to ask themselves, right? Yeah. So then when you started dating, have you now... Do you only date Asian women? So when I first started dating, I went to prom with a white girl. And then I went to actually a couple of prom... Or like just dances with, yeah. with white girls. So it wasn't until college that I started dating or being 
more interested in like Asian Asian women and like more serious relationships and more serious like relationships. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it just kind of just happened naturally. But it also it just comes with the fact that you're when you go to college in San Diego, mm-hmm. you're just around a lot more diversity, yeah. and so again, you just you start being attracted to who you're attracted to. Mm. So from there, yeah, it's tough to deny the fact that like I ultimately think that I'll probably end up with somebody of Asian descent. And I think that's just based off of now at this point in my life, the main important things are interests. And I think there's a lot of Asian stuff that I talk about, you guys know, that I think would be maybe tough with other people. And not that they wouldn't understand, but I want somebody that's excited to talk about Mm. it with. I want somebody that's going to be like, oh, hey, I read this thing over here or this movie's coming out. Let's talk about it. And I want them to be excited about it too. Mm. Mm. So for me, yeah, interest levels are really important. And that just has to do with like Asian identity and Mm -hmm. i talk a lot about asian identity and then uh, the other thing that has nothing to do with being asian which actually probably has a lot more to do with me being white is my my sense of humor and i think that i just i like women with a quirky sense of humor Mm -hmm. and i get that more from asian women that grew up in like white communities too Mm -hmm. because i think that they were raised more american and there's more alternative comedy and things Mm -hmm. they might might have been influenced by so i think that's actually influenced by my american side Mm. my interest in, in women with quirky sense of, right. uh, senses of humor. So if you're that person, <laughs> feel free to find Dan on Instagram. LOL. <laughs> and community people. I don't know. Mm. I'm like just people that are proactive. So Dan, you shared with us that in college you had, you started then kind of um, being exposed to more like Asian women, you had more serious relationships, right? And um, in just knowing you as a friend, we know that you had a pretty serious relationship in college for a couple years, right? With a, a girl who was Asian. Was she Korean? Oh, no, she was Vietnamese. She was Vietnamese. Did you have the experience of meeting her family? And like, when you think about that, right, in terms of like a future partner, it's not just about you and her, but about her, about like your your families are going to be coming together. Like, do you think about, I don't know, like, do you want your children to learn Korean? Is, is, Is the Korean aspect of your identity very important to you to pass down? Yeah. All of those things are very important to me. And I think that it would be really nice to be able, that's why I want to learn Korean is Mm -hmm. to be able to have that within my culture. And I do think that now I'm pretty active on trying to maybe marry somebody that's Korean, because I think that it kind of would be helpful with my biological family side. Right, right. So, and that's a weird thing to think about because it obviously doesn't help me with like other parts of my, it's, it's a very like I don't think it's selfish, but like, it's just a weird thing to have to think about. It's a pretty specific aspect of it. Yeah, because that would be awesome if they could help me communicate with my family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for a translator. Just be your translator. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no, no. You can, you can pay for those. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it is important, though, that I think that having somebody with that's interested in culture and that has a, a love of the background and the history they come mm-hmm. from, I think that's like really important. And that... I did have an opportunity to meet my uh, college girlfriend's family a couple of times, a bunch of times, actually. Mm-hmm. And it was really nice. And it was something that, like, I think that it's it's really amazing being able to, uh, even when it's with, like, your families or people that mm-hmm. I meet or, like, our friends' families. Like, it's really awesome just being in situations where you can tell there's a lot of culture and history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's very important. So, and, and you've shared with us, you know, because you grew up in a mostly, like, white community um, that a lot of the uh, maybe crushes that you had, you didn't feel like it was reciprocated a lot when you're younger, right? Did that ever build a sense of shame for your identity as an Asian person when you were growing up if you were not around people that were similar? Like, did you ever feel ostracized and then personally kind of experience like 
uh, a desire to want to not be Asian. Not as strongly as maybe other people. Mm-hmm. And that's because I think Southern California helps out a lot. Mm. Regardless of the fact that maybe I wasn't around a lot of Asian people, it's still really helpful that I grew up in a pretty diverse community mm. and that people weren't maybe as, as mean as they could have been because they were right. just around other diversity too. Being able to connect with your world really helps you. And like meeting people outside of your own culture, whether whether or not it's Asian, I think makes you a more empathetic human being. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that just generally it didn't affect me as, as much as maybe it did other people. Mm. That's interesting because I, I know we get asked a lot kind of the, when we do speaking events, like when was your lunchbox moment, right? Mm-hmm. Like when did you feel like you were different? And then that, that difference was like something to be ashamed of. So for you, you never felt that. I didn't, no. So those are the things that maybe, again, are are potential trade-offs. You guys internalized it in a certain way. I didn't have to internalize that particular part of my life. So I'm sure that influenced me in a different way, too. So, Dan, a lot of our listeners are adoptees and looking to connect with their Aiden identity. As someone who is adopted into a white family, what advice to our adoptee listeners would you give to connect with their Asian American identity? Right now is such an amazing time to be Asian American. Obviously, I say that during a time where there's dramatic, awful events that are happening in our community. There, the uprise in violence and anti-Asian hate is, is awful. It, there's no way to get around just how bad it is for our community right now, mm-hmm. uh, comparatively to maybe when I was growing up, at least. I know that there's other spots and time, times when the racism was, was extremely bad, um, but like right now it's awful. But on the other side, that with Asian American media and books and authors and things that are potentially out there, and especially with the internet, to be able to be able to research and see things that represent you, I think there's no better time to have been Asian American. So right now, I think that I ask a lot of younger Asian Americans this too, whether or not they feel even more represented, like do they feel like that they're underrepresented? And a amazing amount more people are saying that they do not feel as ostracized from the community as maybe they would have 10 years ago. Mm. So I think that we're in a much better place with where Asian media and whatnot is. And so how that relates to Asian adoptees, I think there's a lot of things that you can research. There's a lot of books and interesting things that I've been able to find that make me feel more in tune and in touch with my culture. And there's a lot of like camps and like virtual opportunities for you to be able to meet other adoptees. And so I would really recommend like searching out for camps uh, mm-hmm. The Colorado Heritage Camps are one that I'm a big fan of. And there's also CON, which is the Korean American Adoptee Network. And so they do amazing conferences around the country that really are more from the educational standpoint, too, where they do a lot of studies and, and papers about uh, adoptee communities. So I, I would look into those. Yeah, I don't know. There's like so many TV shows out now that just mm-hmm. make you feel more reflected as a human being. So I think that it's not necessarily... Uh, what can I do to feel more connected to my Asian identity? If you're if you're listening to Asian Boss Girl, you're connected to your Asian American <laughs> identity. We're like in it. Like this is like pretty much Asian identity 101. If you've like made your way over to Asian Boss Girl, like you know what to find. You're already doing a better job at Googling than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really do like that advice about going out and connecting with other people of similar experiences because I think that's what we have found as a, as a huge benefit from doing what we do is bringing people together. Yeah. yeah. So Dan, thank you so much for taking us through the history of all of the things that you've experienced in your relationship with your identity. Today, you know, standing before us as a 35-year-old Korean-American man in Los Angeles, how would you define Dan now? I think ultimately, not just me, but everybody, 
And where we currently stand today is we're just a reflection of all of the different experiences that we've had growing mm. up. And that's a really broad, not a very specific answer that I think that maybe people are looking for, but I am what I am right now. Mm. I'm going to be very different in five years. Mm. I have no idea who I'm going to be in five years. And I am more confident and I understand my place in the world. And I think mm. that's helpful. But there's not necessarily a specific thing that I'd say that who, who am I today? I don't know. I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. But I, I am who I am right now. Love that. You are the culmination of all the experiences that you've had. So you're substantial, but you're also ever-changing. Yes. I can't believe it's already been three years since I started going to therapy. I remember the moment I decided to set that first appointment. I just had a panic attack, and it was the scariest thing I've ever been through mentally and physically. After that incident, I wanted more than anything to understand what brought me to this point and what I can do to help manage my anxiety. Therapy has changed my life, and BetterHelp has been my go-to counseling service. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today and is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. I've been with my current counselor for more than half a year now, and it's been great. She's really responsive when something urgent comes up and is really attentive during our sessions. I typically do monthly video calls with her, but whether you work better with phone, video calls, or messaging, BetterHelp has options for you. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and ABG listeners can get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com abg10. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Again, you can try it out at betterhelp.com abg10. Hi, ABGs and ABBs. It's Janet here. As we all know, Asian Americans make up a big part of this country and help make this country strong. Yet when it comes to health research, we are poorly represented. And when research doesn't include us, future health discoveries may not either. Asian Americans have unique health concerns. For example, we are more likely than white Americans to have diabetes. And as someone who has family members who suffer from type 2 diabetes, this is something that I personally care about. If we share our health information, it may help researchers address the health problems in our community. Research studies in the U.S. have rarely considered Asian American people, and it's well past time for that to change. And the All of Us research program is making that change. Here's how it works. They'll collect information such as your height, weight, health conditions, and medicines, and then researchers may be able to use this information to better understand and improve health for all of us. As a participant, you can also choose to get your genetic ancestry and traits results at no cost. Our heritage is rich and our communities are strong. We need researchers to hear our stories. The more people who join, the more information researchers will have and the more they will learn. Ask your friends and family to join to make a difference at joinallofus.org A-B-G. Asian Boss Girl is supported by First Republic Bank. Whether your financial needs are simple or complex, the First Republic mobile app is your direct link to personalized support every step of the way. Easily schedule payments, keep track of expenses, securely transfer funds, or message your dedicated First Republic banker directly from the app. The newly designed First Republic app helps you manage accounts safely and securely without sacrificing the tailored service that their clients have come to expect. The First Republic Bank mobile app is available on the App Store and Google Play. Visit firstrepublic.com today to learn more. That's firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. ABC Monday, The Bachelorette is back. Katie's journey to find love begins, and the drama starts night one when one man arrives in a box. Who is this mystery man? Is he, pardon the pun, the whole package? And the biggest question of all, have we seen him on a season of The Bachelorette before? 
And this season, our Bachelorette has two friends on the inside. Bachelor Nation fan favorites Taisha and Caitlin stepping in to help make sure Katie knows who's there for the right reasons, who should take a moment and say their goodbyes. The Bachelorette premieres Monday, 8, 7 central on ABC. Dan, you're actually so freaking talented. You're running ISA. You're such a good friend. You're also a very talented rapper. Your songs are definitely on my playlist. Can you share with our listeners like when and how did you start getting into music? I started getting into music when I was in high school. And I think a lot of it came from going back to the identity question, which is just this need to be able to express myself. So I think that I needed a way to just talk about some of the things that were on my mind. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it seemed like the music was probably the best way to be able to do that. So I did start writing when I was in high school. It was very bad. Nobody will ever hear those things ever in the history of of the world. But it eventually kept on going. And I'm extremely lucky, again, just all of these instances of luck that I just kept on going with it. And then in college, I started this hip hop band called After School Special. And then that was lucky because we got started right around the time that like YouTube was getting started. So we got to kind of ride that wave a little bit and then met Wong Fu and then Wong Fu did a music video for us. And that enabled us to go to the next step of my career. Mm -hmm. And then that led me to going solo like five, six years ago and just being able to maintain it. And so throughout that time, I would just always think that it was going to end at some point that me just doing music wasn't something that was who am I, a musician? Like, I can't say that, but I really am thankful and grateful to be able to say that I'm a working musician and I still write music and I'm still doing it today. Well, Dan, one distinct thing that all of us always notice about you, you have such a clear, distinct voice. Like, when we see you, we're like, Dan, that's our theme. Like, to, like, mimic your voice. When did you know that you had this, like, special, very clear and concise, like, voice? I didn't. I actually didn't like my voice. I still kind of don't like my voice. I'm very particular about that in the same way that you guys are probably very particular about that as podcasters because that's what you're listening to the most. So you're very self-aware of how your voice sounds. So you know when your voice sounds good, when it doesn't sound good. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty like critical of the way that my voice sounds, but I do think that there are moments when it does sound good and that I like the way that it sounds and that I'm lucky and happy that that happens with music sometimes so i do enjoy the process of recording stuff and hopefully using my voice to be able to tell stories through music so you said it started in high school that you started writing that was there like did you have friends that were into music or how did Mm. did you just start listening to music a lot and you were like wow i um this is something i want to replicate yeah that was probably everybody wanted to be a musician in high school like Mm. during that time that everybody wanted to play guitar or Mm. they wanted to DJ or they wanted to like make beats or whatever. I think that being a musician or just being a rock star is one of those childhood fantasies Mm. that all kids want to do. And especially growing up in Southern California, I can, yeah, yeah, that was. Yeah, I think that was definitely a bigger part of my experience. Mm -hmm. So I think that I met friends that happened to have the technology to be able to record music. And then I did it with them because I thought it was fun. And it was just like a fun activity. And then I just kept on going with it. So yeah, at that time, it just I got lucky that I had a friend that just happened to have the technology to be able to record. So how did you come up with the name Dan, a.k.a. Dan? That's your stage name, right? Yes. So Dan, a.k.a. Dan doesn't really mean anything. And at the time when I was coming up with it, it had no meaning whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking of an MC name and that I liked the way that it looked. And it was like very Dan, a.k.a. Dan. It just looked like interesting to me. But 
over time, mm-hmm. it's really turned into something that I'm very grateful for. It's one of those, I think it's called Kismet, where like the universe mm-hmm. just aligns. Mm-hmm. And for me, it just aligned because what I realized later on was that AKA stands for American Korean Adoptee. Mm-hmm. So a lot of adoptees call themselves that. And then AKA is a thing within the adoptee community because you're your American self, but you're also your Korean self. Mm-hmm. You're two different sides. Mm-hmm. And then also I'm a Gemini. And so there's two different mm-hmm. sides of you. And that ultimately, like, it is one of those things that you become a different person. I'm a different person when I'm on stage. I'm a different person when I do these different things. Yeah. Not that I'm two-faced, but I'm just <laughs> saying that we become these different things when we need to become these things. So yeah. that's what Danny K. Dan means. I've always thought your stage name was incredible and super clever because I was watching your documentary about how you found your birth parents. And I don't know if I'm spoiling it, but there's a moment where you see his name pop up and it goes, AKA, and it goes, American Korean adoptee. And I'm just like, holy shit, Dan is so clever. Like, how did you know? I am. <laughs> it was all intended. I just always knew. Yeah, I had no idea. It just worked out. It really just worked out. I have no idea. If, my, if I had a different stage name, AK Dan would not be the documentary of the, of the documentary. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Who are some of your musical influences, you'd say? Mike Shinoda, Linkin Park. Again, just when you think about Southern California rock at that time, mm. and then Asian musicians, Mike Shinoda, rapper. And so I was listening to a lot of that that I think really heavily influenced me. Mm. Yeah, that's, no, that, that makes sense. So a lot of alternative rap, yeah. like stuff that sounds like that. I think we're really fortunate as your friends that you'll share your music with us. And I know you have an upcoming album. Would you say your musical style has changed throughout the years? I think it does. I mm-hmm. think that just what we listen to, it's become a lot more electronic. Mm-hmm. I think that just the, because music in general has become a lot more electronic. And so the more and more that you listen to other different sounds, you're like, oh, that sounds good. I want to do something that sounds like that. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you, you take different styles and you, you put them together to create whatever it is. So it's something that just continues to develop. And I think that with my style too, mm-hmm. the one thing that I don't think that I did it intentionally, but I think works in my favor is that being more indie rap or not being specific with one specific sound allows me to have different sounds. So obviously there's still like types of songs or like music that I don't think is very authentic to me. I think everything that I put out is authentic. That's the one thing that I will say. Mm. And that I think it's important to me that the songs that I put out represent me and the things that I'm talking about. And, uh, and so there's obviously like certain songs or subject matters that just don't make sense for me to rap about. Mm-hmm. But in general, I think that what I do is, is a re- reflection of self. Yeah. So would you say a lot of your lyrics are from your adoption story? So, some of them are from, they're definitely adoptee songs. And mm-hmm. I really appreciate a good adoption song. Shout out to this guy named Go. He's a rapper from Seattle, Asian American rapper, Korean adoptee. And so he wrote a really good song about meeting his, or like having this thoughts of wanting to meet his biological family. So mm-hmm. I think that music definitely allows people to relate. And there's a lot of really great adoption songs out there. Yeah. No. And then I'm looking forward to the day that you release a K-pop song. Oh, wow. <laughs> See, that's one of those things that I can't do, actually. You can't? So that's one of those styles that I don't think that I would sound very authentic on. I, I think you can. Give me let, let Mel let, produce let, you on that. Say, what's a K-pop song that you could hear me on? Right? It's tough. Tell me. Well, I, I, there's so much in my brain. You had to give me like a few moments. But um, I guess do you have any advice for anyone that is interested in getting into music? Just stick with it. Get on TikTok. Uh, TikTok. <laughs> yeah just stick with it honestly if you're good you're good <laughs> so I'm, i don't know a lot of people know this but dan is someone i go to a lot when i'm feeling anxiety or stress i think we both share that common feeling and emotion especially when it comes to anxiety and dan i know you work in entertainment and there's a big drinking component to it, and partying can be really prevalent and often it's, it's used partying and drinking as a way to kind of do business right 
how do you take care of yourself and balance this, I guess, your work entertainment side and also your physical and mental well-being? I don't. I don't, I don't take very good care of myself. And that's the reason why I've got so much anxiety. And I think that that's also a thing that there's some people that do it very well, that are able to balance both of those things. But it's something that people aren't naturally born to do. Yeah. It's not like an easy thing to do. So most people don't do it very well and they fall to the darkness and they end up, uh, it ends up affecting them a lot. Mm-hmm. So one of the good things that it's come out of having to quarantine more and just not having these different things around us is that I haven't had to like think about that in a long time. And I'm very thankful for that because it's allowed me to, I think, hopefully put myself into a better position that once stuff starts opening up again, that I can be a better person when I go out and represent myself. But I don't think I do it very well. I, I think that I probably drink way too much. And I think that uh, there's just way too much stuff going on that you have to like balance a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and balance a lot of relationships. And it's it's tough. Uh, that isn't to say that like, I don't know, it's fun. Like it's, that's Hollywood. You're like... <laughs> You're you're, yeah. you're out and about, you're going to one event, you're doing these things. Yeah. And it's not like that's like the everyday of it, yeah, but right, right. it's it's tough. And the reason it's tough be- is because it's a not a normal human thing to have to do. Right. Yeah. Do you mind sharing with our listeners, like, can you give us an example, like when it, when it has been challenging for you? Um, I think that just because when you have this constant need to have to be on all the time because when you're at these things, it's not like you intentionally go at them because you're trying to network or like meet other people or trying to like ter- take care of people. Mm-hmm. And through that experience, you, it's not like, it's not like that I've never not been me, but you got to like be an extended version of me. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those AKA Dan things where you, you got to mm. just turn it on. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it's tough to just always be on. Mm-hmm. And that when you mix having to always be on with added pressure, or like something goes wrong and then you're balancing a lot of other thoughts and then you mix alcohol into that. It's never a good way to exist. Mm-hmm. Like that's not like a natural thing. Yeah. So it's tough. And I think that, so kudos to the people that can balance it. It's not like that, I'm not making excuses. I think that uh, obviously it's something that you just got to get yourself in check, but it's a, uh, it's a, a tough thing to, to, to balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, Dan, we've talked a lot, maybe especially with the past year in quarantine where you've had more time to kind of like reflect that you're intentionally going to build in more periods of time for rest, right? Like you were just, uh, I, I remember like when you have big projects, we've had conversations where you're like, I'm actively going to take like a week or two mm-hmm. now to like chill out my schedule. So I think that's like a lot of this, this step one, like whether you're in entertainment or other industries, because uh, for me in my past careers, I found myself doing the same. If you just have a go, go, go mentality, mm-hmm. it's really hard to perceive when you're starting to burn out. But the fact yeah. that you start to recognize like, like, hey, I'm on a lot and that's like resulting in me feeling burnt out. Um, you know, recognizing and, and building in time to, to rest is like a good way to deal, which I feel like you're, you're doing. I agree. I already feel it. I already don't feel fo- things are opening up in LA. I don't feel FOMO. I'm cool. Yeah. <laughs> what's, the ap- what's the opposite uh, of FOMO? NOMO. NOMO. Um, <laughs> yeah. It just, it feels better. And Again, knock on wood. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I, yeah. I, you, could, you could fall back in habits very easily. That's yeah. Why I, that's why they're habits. But I do think that with the with where I'm currently at, and I think that the the people around me, I think that we uh, have all, you guys keep me in check. And I think that's extremely important. And I think that moving forward, I also in a better place where I just think that I know where I'm at and I don't mm-hmm. really need to, I'm, I'm good. I, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm happy for all of these to, to always have opportunities and we're lucky to be in the industry that we're in. Mm-hmm. But I think that for me, 
it's uh, yeah, just finding a good balance. Yeah. yeah. Along the same topic of challenges, um, as an Asian American man, I want to know what are some of the challenging experiences you have faced in the entertainment and music industry. Uh, specifically, we always on this podcast talk about moments of imposter syndrome, which are moments where you might feel like you've reached a place of where you are due to luck over personal achievements. Is that something that you faced in the entertainment and music industry? And if so, can you walk us through a moment where you might have felt it the heaviest? I've thought about that a lot recently. So the tangible thing, I'm going to try to say this as best as I can, that we're especially in the industries that we're in, a lot of it's luck. And that ultimately the people that are able to succeed, you definitely still need skill. So I feel like that uh, once, the, and, you only, and only some of us get the luck too. It's not like luck goes to everybody. You get luck in different ways. So I think that ultimately I've made my peace with the idea that I've gotten pretty lucky with the music stuff mm. and that my skill has taken me to whatever level I'm currently at. Mm. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. And that I think I've made my, I'm extremely happy and grateful for the opportunities I've gotten through that. And then also through advertising and like all of the production stuff that I'm currently doing that I think that there's a certain level of skill and luck and that once skill meets luck, where you're basically like a, it's a Venn diagram and that you're, I'm making a, a chart, but it's a Venn diagram. So that's my roundabout saying that I do feel imposter syndrome, but I think that it's only when I'm trying to do way more than I'm currently doing that I feel that. Mm-hmm. And that when I center myself and realize that where I'm currently at, I'm like, oh, no, I, d- I deserve to be at this current intersection because I've had the right amount of luck and the right amount of skill to get me to where mm-hmm. that particular place needs to be. Where are you trying to get to with your music career? I'm actually happy with where I'm, currently at in that I finally, this is also imposter syndrome, that it's really tough for me to say that I'm an Asian American rapper because there's definitely not a lot of Asian American rappers. And for me to say that, especially when it's something that I haven't necessarily been doing full time, I feel like an imposter. I'm like, oh, all of these other musicians are like really, really, really good. If I'm not as good as X, Y, or Z, like I'm not really, I'm not like rapping. I'm just, I'm just trying. I'm, I'm a try hard. But this is where I've learned to accept it though, that I think I'm actually like, I, I enjoy what I write. And I think mm-hmm. that I'm at a place where I'm comfortable with the way that my voice sounds and the way that I'm able to produce music. And so I'm like really excited about that. And that I, this maybe is a good transition into, I've got more music that's coming out. I've written 10 songs. I've got eight recorded. I'm going to record two more songs. I'll have 12 songs. I'm going to just start dropping stuff like in June and then July and then August and songs are going to start coming out. And I'm really excited because I think this is the, this is the, the best stuff that I've ever written. Ooh. And I think that it just takes you to a certain place. Everybody peaks at whatever time they need to like mm-hmm. get to that place where they can write the stuff that they want to write. So I think this is some of the best stuff that I've, I've, I've ever written. I'm really, and also recorded and also produced. So I'm, I'm really excited to put out this music in, in the summertime. And I'm like, I'm, I, I like the topics. I like reading it. It's the same way that all of our friends, when they watch their own movies or they, they read their scripts, they're like, oh, like, I'm like stoked about this. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I've got that feeling. So I feel yeah. very, very good about that. And that, yeah, the first thing will hopefully come out in June and it's mastered. And that quick plug that if you do, by the time that this episode comes out, that the song will be out. And if you want a sneak preview of it, please click the link in my Instagram account because it'll take you to a place where you can listen to the song. Yes, please, everyone, support Dan. I mean, you can already yes. hear it in his voice. I'm like trying to talk as fast as Dan right now, but I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. 
He has an incredible voice. His music is great. We've heard a few samples already, and they are boppers. I don't know why I said that word. They're straight fire. It's fire. Fire. First song's called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. That sounds so timely. Yeah, it's something yeah. you love. I love that song. Yeah. It's only because Mel loves it so much that that's going to be the first single. <laughs> Mel, Mel's my good test of whether or not something is good enough to put out. I really oh. trust, when I think about like my audience, yeah, yeah. Like, I think Mel's actually like, she's the, she's the Venn diagram. I'm, uh, I'm that <laughs> basic Asian chick that you I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that like, I know, I you, can, you purposely listen to music. Yeah, she like, has okay, her then, pulse on kind of like... Yeah, but it's, it sounds good. Yeah, so I go to like Mel to see if it sounds good or not. She's the head bopper. She's the team head bopper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Dan, we're going to start closing this up. This is such a good episode. Thank you so much. Um, but what is one piece of advice that you've picked up throughout your career and always go back to and can share with our audience? Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Mm, that's a good one. <laughs> Wait, hold on. I have to like think about it. No, I like how Jada's like, "Oh, that's a good one." You're like, "Huh?" And what it means is, it's it's like one of those do or do not. There is no try. It's you know that you it's, know that it's more. It's basically saying like, <laughs> yes, uh, you can do whatever you want. Just go do it. Yeah. Like, whether like, you think you can or like your mindset is going to determine whether you you fail or succeed. Mm-hmm. So whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Teacher. Jim. If I think I can, I'm right. If I think I can't, then I then I can't. Mm. If I can, if I think I can, then I can. If I think I can't, then I can't. And that's not to They're encourage saying anybody. The same thing as their voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at yeah. Alex. <laughs> that's not to encourage anybody to say that, that. Don't do the things you don't think you can do. I was trying to go do whatever yeah, things yeah. are. Uh, I actually that goes against my. There is no try. <laughs> <laughs> No, but what I mean though is just go do it. Like, yeah. yeah, just go do it. So like Nike, just do it. Just, just do it, man. There's <laughs> nothing that's if you're within the certain means, and we're all within a certain means that you've got a life to live. Just go do those things that you need to go mm-hmm. do, and just be happy. I like it. I like it. Say <laughs> one more time for the people in the back, like me. Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Oof. Nice. We're going to wrap this episode up with a quick fire round of questions. This is a a nice kind of fun way to get to know you, Dan. The goal of this is for you to answer these without much thought. So the first answers that come to mind, okay? Oh, I'm awful at these. Yeah, let's go. (laughs) Ready? Yes. American food or Korean food? Korean food. If not Dan, a.k.a. Dan, what would your stage name be? Dan. Describe the perfect kiss in three words. Soft. (laughs) Mushy. Super wet. That sounds like... (laughs) I'm kidding. I don't know. <laughs> like baby food. <laughs> Mushy. Yeah. When, Delightful. When you when you dance, you look like blank. Running man. What TV sitcom family would you be a member of? Fresh off the boat. Because mm. they're Asian. <laughs> that's the only reason. What would be the soundtrack of your life? The music stuff should be the easiest thing for me to answer, <laughs> yeah. but it's always the, the hardest. hardest. Oh, so this is a good way to end the whiteness talk or just my upbringing mm-hmm. there's a billy joel song which is a artist that a lot of white people like <laughs> <laughs> and, and non-white people too but 
There's a song called Vienna by Billy Joel that I heavily recommend everybody listen to. Mm. And it's all about not letting the world pass by you. Mm. Move slow. Think about stuff. Be, be calm. Just be at ease. Mm. I like that. Whether you can or you can't. <laughs> You're right. All right. Well, Dan, you have achieved so much already as a spokesperson for Asian adoptees, an executive director at ISA, and as a rapper. What is next for you? And how can the lovely ABG community support you? Most importantly, this album's going to drop over the summertime. Would love as many listens and streams and shares as possible. Please check it out. Dan, aka Dan, will be on Spotify, all the socials and whatnot. Please, uh, please spread the word. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And hopefully you guys will too. And then please support International Secret Agents, ISA, and my partners and the people that are around. Everybody's doing good work and they're all out there working hard on hopefully very positive things for the community. So please go support everybody that's all around us and check out some projects. Yes. And where can we find you online? You can find me online at Dan, a.k.a. Dan, D-A-N, a.k.a. D-A-N. If you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and share this episode with your friends. You can also support us through monthly donations at anchor.fm slash slash support, or get some merch at asianbossgirl.myshopify.com. If you resonate with today's episode, let us know in the comments of our IG post. If you'd like to put faces to our names, you can find us on YouTube where we share vlogs, an audience Q&A segment called GRBG, and much more. Our handle on both platforms is asianbossgirl. And we have a couple of shout outs to wrap today's episode from on to hot in SoCal. Hey ha, it is so nice to meet somebody who shares the same interest and love for the Asian Boss Girl podcast as much as I do. Ah, we love that. Good luck and can't wait for our weekly study hang. Dylan in Auckland, New Zealand is giving a shout out to Lucy for being the best and putting up with Dylan's soju antics. Ooh, I'm going to give a shout out to Mel and Helen for putting up with my soju antics as well. Kelly in Richmond, Virginia is sending a huge congratulations to Tiffany for completing her first year of medical school at VCU as first in her class. Go Tiffany! So proud and can't wait to see what else you accomplish. From Toronto, Sam, Jen, Lena, and Kath are wishing a happy birthday to Megan. You are such an incredible friend and we are lucky to celebrate with you. Miss and love you. Jen Enosi is wishing a happy birthday to Diana. Thank you for being the inspiring and supportive Asian boss girl in the lives of your friends and family. From Newport Beach, Jennifer is wishing a happy birthday to her best friend, Stephanie. She hopes you have a wonderful day and cannot wait to go to the Jonas Brothers concert with you. If you'd like to send a shout out to a friend, check out our link tree in our link in bio and click on shout outs. And well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. And for our listeners, enjoy a small snippet of his new album. We'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Later. Where you are, where you will be Can't feel the thing from afar So the real me is feeling like reveal me I'm just concealing Can't feel the ground anymore Just the ceiling Since the days we met I just been placing bets I met impulsive Yeah, that had to face regrets Been moving too fast To check the grand plan Yeah, that the world doesn't stop But no man without it I've lived undoubted Unhinged about it No need for balance Now that it's outed I got walls up protection At this intersection it bends I long for connection again Seeking someone as a friend With you is the world it ends Thinking about you In these times of unrest To keep myself level And confined to great stress without you.